that was the opening music to against I was gonna say against all odds but it's that's a different movie <laughs> all right let me try that again well that was the opening music of odds against tomorrow and it was released in 1959 directed by one of our favorite directors Robert Wise and I knew we were gonna we were gonna review more Robert Wise movies even after our festival right oh yeah how can you how can you not I mean you made so many and there are many more we could do this again and again yeah yeah and it was written by um, it's from a novel by William McGiven and the screenplay was written by Abraham Polanski which I found out he was on the blacklist for Hollywood and yes yeah he had a he had a run-in with the House on American Activities Committee. Yeah, so when the screenplay was originally being kind of shopped around, it didn't have an author on it. It, it was just, <laughs> they couldn't put his name on it. You're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net, and we're on Patreon. Just go to Patreon slash Classic Movie Reviews, and you'll find us there. And uh, Patreon is a great way to support the show. It helps us uh, save up some money so we can upgrade some of our equipment and offset some of our uh, costs for running the show. And thank you to all those folks who have become patrons. We appreciate it. We sure do, and we thank them. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from cloudy North Bend today. I'm Bob Johnson. I'm here in Los Angeles welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and Odds Against Tomorrow, which... Uh, to put it mildly, is a bit bleak in its uh, in its texture and composure, and a dynamite film in terms of its rich character studies and plot. I mean, it's 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 excellent, it really is. Um, and I learned after watching the interview with uh, Mr. Belafonte that I guess it's okay to say it's Bobby Weiss, not Robert Weiss. <laughs> maybe if you're his friend, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I, I even wondered if I should even say that now but anyway well this film um, was not it was kind of went undiscovered when it came out and uh, I didn't see it until years later and I can't remember exactly where I saw it probably at a drive-in theater or something like that uh, but it was around quite a while before it really gained popularity and my to watch it now it is so amazingly powerful I wrote Five things I uh, took away from it, just in terms of my my reaction to it, visceral, visceral, viscerally. It's kind of cold in how it looks, because it was filmed in March of 1959. Everything looks sort of uh, gray and and uh, and uh, almost dead looking. It's bleak, foreboding. Forecasts some doom. And the black and white photography, cinematography and all, that Mr. White used, Weiss used was uh, perfect for the film. Yeah, and it's a great study of contrast, too, because you get the sort of the race relation aspect of it. But you also get like this idea of, of like their personal lives, too. So both both main characters have issues in their personal lives with their significant others and with other people around them and so it's 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 interesting that there's they're both so different in some ways and and very similar in other ways yeah that that comes out 
throughout the film and toward the end of it, it really shows up. It also has the subtext of uh, of the atomic age and the uh, uh, mutually shared self-destruction concepts that were going on in the 50s and 60s. And, and there were other movies that came out that had some of the same themes, but this one uh, really brings it down to a basic, this is a bank heist film, and uh, beyond that, it's also about bigotry, race relations, and, and, and the uh, nuclear threat. <laughs> and, and, and as with all great bank heist films, the whole thing falls apart because the, the people pulling it off can't get their crap together. <laughs> yeah. I was watching uh, The Split a couple of days ago, and uh, it was on Turner Classic Movies, and Ben Mankiewicz, in introducing it, said, everything in this film is perfectly laid out, and it goes well until it all goes wrong. <laughs> That'd be a perfect <laughs> description of this movie, too. Yeah, there have been some that have been successful, but boy, this one uh, takes us to another place, doesn't it? Yeah, and we should we should definitely say that this movie is um, available to watch for free on YouTube, and I'll put links in the show notes. And you should go watch this movie before you listen to any more of this podcast, because there's some great surprises, and the ending is uh, something that you really need to see. Uh, before you listen to the show. <laughs> and the uh, copy on YouTube is, is uh, an excellent copy, very clear. Were you taken uh, by the uh, just the visualness of the, the surroundings and the coldness of it and the, the feel of winter and early spring? It just adds to the drama and the feel of this thing. Even like the opening scenes when Robert Ryan is going into that high-rise building, apartment building, and he's walking along the sidewalks, and it, you get that feeling that it's like this cold winter light that that sharp angle of the sun coming down and then you hear wind in the background and then he goes into the elevator and you hear the wind rattling around in the elevator shaft and he the elevator operator makes a joke about whether they're going to make it to the seventh floor or not or whatever floor they're going to floor mister six you hear that wind? Man, I'm going to get myself grounded out of the Air Force. That's what I'm going to do. Ain't going to fly this kind of crate anymore. Can you blame me? Robert Ryan is so stoic. He doesn't even say anything at all. He's just, you get, there's a great, you get a great character development for both Robert Ryan's character and Harry Belafonte's character, just from them going up to the guy's apartment where they're going to learn about this uh, heist. But yeah, the, they, they do set the tone for the weather and that definitely plays a part in the mood of the film. I felt like I needed to put on a winter coat as I watched it. It was uh, it was that kind of feel. I think that opening scene that you just described was filmed on the upper west side of Manhattan, and I think the river that they're looking out over is the Hudson. I'm not sure of that, but I think that's how they set that up. And 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 Robert Ryan, I mean, he is the he's the the ideal example of a racist. It's just amazing. And and then listening to Mr. Belafonte in that interview that we uh, that we watched, 
uh, Ryan was so far from what it was like in real life, it was amazing. Because in real life, he was pretty much the opposite of that. He was a big supporter involved in the civil rights movement with uh, Dr. King and others. Yeah, so It was a testament to his ability to act. Oh, definitely. And it comes out right away when... Um... Well, you don't pick it up. You, you pick it up a little bit in the elevator, but you, you could kind of maybe think that he's just a really grumpy, surly guy. Um, but I think it is because the elevator operator is, is a black man that he, he just doesn't want to interact with him. And then when he learns that the other person who's going to be involved in the heist is um, Harry Belafonte's character, Ingram, he really lets it fly. I mean, he's not he's not bashful at all about his racism. Hello, Bert. Come in, come in. Earl, I want you to meet Johnny Ingram. This is Earl Slater. Sorry I'm a little late, but I had girly trouble. Where were you, Dave? I was telling him about the chain. Then the guard locks the door again without ever unhooking the chain, and the waiter leaves. That's right. Chippy is the chain. we got to figure out an answer on the chain. Maybe you could have him put a gun on the guard and his barrel through the door. Hmm? What do you think, Johnny? I don't know. Tell him about the car. I got a beauty. A hopped-up motor with dual carburation and a beat-up station wagon body. I bought two stolen plates, and the car can't be traced. It's a remade job that was used in smuggling. We've got four police specials that have no history and a couple of shotguns. I thought this was an easy job. Sounds like D-Day. Now, don't you give those guns a thought. I'll take care of them. I'm not thinking about the guns. I'm thinking about the chain. Don't worry about it, boy. We'll be right there with you. All you have to do is carry the sandwiches in a white monkey jacket and give him a big smile and say yes, sir. You don't have to worry and you don't have to think. We'll take care of you. You have to start right now. Don't beat out that Civil War jazz here, sweetheart. We're all in this together, each man equal, and we're taking care of each other. It's one big play, a one and only chance to grab stakes forever. And I don't want to hear what your grandpappy thought on the old farm down in Oklahoma. You got it? Well, I, I'm with you, Dave. Like you say, it's just one roll of the dice. Doesn't matter what color they are. So as they come up seven. Yeah, he uses a bunch of derogatory like remarks and comparisons to try to put Ingram in his place. And Ingram, to his credit, is not having it. He's just not going to let Robert Ryan's character, who is um, Slater, talk to him that way. I think that Ryan's character, Slater was a bundle of uh, post-traumatic syndromes. That scene in the bar where uh, he's finally had it with that soldier. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. he, he could have easily killed that guy. Shall we? Sure. What do you do when a guy grabs you this way? Mm, I give up. <laughs> hey! hey. Oh, relax, baby. Don't fight me. Hey, I thought that was what I was supposed to do. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet in a minute. It'll be too late. <laughs> hey, come on. Grab my wrist. Now, don't try to break the hole. Put your right foot over in front of mine. Yeah. Now, throw your hip out, bend forward, and throw me. <laughs> Honey, 
If you're going to throw that bum, you throw him the other way. All right, why don't we all just uh, drink up and quit fooling around, huh? Did you say something to me, bud? That stuff belongs to my war. I'll take her to Canaveral and launch her. Well, maybe you know something better. Now, look, fellas, let's, let's all just settle down, shall we? I'm going. Maybe you'd like to try. Sonny, you better go back and play with the girls. Tell them all about Sputnik. I thought you were an expert or something. Come on, throw a punch. I'll show you if it's bull. All right, soldier, let's, let's break it up. It's not a fight. I just want to show this old veteran how this thing works. Now, come on. Don't you want to throw something? Get lost. Just a scientific experiment. We're just a couple of scientists. Now, come on, throw a punch. Try it. All right, Earl. Let me take care of this, sir. Now, look, soldier, I... Go on, try it. Any particular hand? Anyone you like, Pop. It was only trying to show off her. I didn't mean to hurt him. Pop, what did you do? Is she better now? It's all right. It's just a whim. Just take it easy, boy. Okay, stretch out. Baby, you stretch out. I'll bring it. Don't come on. He was angry. He was angry. He was depressed. He was uh, a race. I mean, he was just a mess. It was like a time bomb. And and yeah, and he even. It, Are you sure? He what I I guess what I really liked. I, it's hard for me to say that I liked his character, but what I liked about what they did with his character is that they gave him a place where he could have had like a home life and. He had that the woman that he was with. I think was it was it Shelley Winters? Winters? Yes, uh huh. It was. He plays Lori, and she's trying to tell him that you know you don't need to go do any more of this stuff. You know you you can just let's just build a life together. I, I know mean, you don't have to go out and do this dangerous work. And he's like, well, I ha I only have a little bit of time left. I've got to go get one more big score, and then and then we can be done. You know, and it's like like that classic, just one more. Like an addict. You know? Well, plus he, he treated her with such a disrespectful approach, and 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 his and his manner was so surly. At one point, she just said, "You know, I'm out of here." Remember that scene where she yeah. go, she walks out and slams yeah, the door yeah. on him. Yeah. I told you, honey. I don't care how long it takes for you to find the right thing to do, sweetie. We're doing fine. And, you know, if my boss does take on this new shop, I'll be making much more money. You might at least say that I look good. If you're going, why in the hell don't you go? Earl. You know, I knew you were in trouble when I fell in love with you. I knew it. I know it would be rough for us, honey, and it would take time, but I didn't care. You don't have to be the great big man with me, Earl. I don't care about things like that. There's only one thing I care about, sweetie. I know. Well, what happens when I get old? You are old now. 
Laura. You can go straight to hell. But what was cool, though, is because they, they did give him that out. Like, if he had been a little bit different of a character, he could have had an, a, a happier, happier life. But he just couldn't let himself be happy, Couldn't get there. And then we, we look at the uh, Harry Belafonte character, an excellent musician. He had a, a child and, and uh, loved the child so much and was very successful in his music. But he had this... Uh, tragic addiction to gambling that was keeping him from success and he was into $7,500 to the mob and wasn't that mob guy the head guy uh, he, he did an excellent job of playing that part yeah he was scary yeah, he was. I don't remember what his his character's name was but he was was it Baco? I think it was I'm a little reluctant to say but he was he was he underplayed that character perfectly to bring across the fact that he was a serious threat if if uh, Belafonte didn't or Ingram didn't come across with the money. He gave Slater kind of a longer rope to hang himself by because he kept giving him a break, you know, and and then finally the chips were being called in and he didn't have the money and there was that scene at the nightclub where the they kind of had a confrontation and Slater pulls a gun on the mob boss. Yeah. Wasn't that the, the, and that was not the right thing to no. do. Jeez. Wow. You saying what to me? Look, man, I'm telling you in front, I don't have it now and I won't be able to get it by tomorrow. I'm not dancing with you, Moriarty. You mean you come here with a gun when I personally call you to talk to you? When I stretch you six months with a dead, somebody else will be dead for, and you come here and pull a gun on me? The gun's in my pocket. The gun's in my hands, that's what it is. I tell you, Ingram, I want you to know, have that door at my place tomorrow night, or I collect it from you, or that ex-wife of yours, or your kid. You do what? Sorry, Johnny, drop that gun. See? Tomorrow night at eight, or I kill you and everything you owe. That the 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 Bob boss came unhinged at that. Then you contrast that with the scenes in the park, where Ingram's with his little girl. Oh, I know. And the yeah. and the and the love, yeah, the merry-go-round and the, the balloons and trying to trying to piece together a life for himself. And he really, I think, wanted to get back together with his either ex-wife or estranged, uh, separated wife. I'm not sure if they had been divorced yet or not. And she was doing everything she could to to move further into a uh, more of a, a successful life arrangement. Yeah, because when we first meet her, Harry Belafonte's character is coming to pick up his daughter to take her out for that trip out to the park. And she's having a PTA or PTSA meeting with a bunch of other people at her apartment and she's either the only black person or maybe there was another black person there but it, it definitely kind of felt like she was trying to move into a different part of society I guess at the time it comes out in another speech which is probably one of my favorite scenes in movies of all time now when the two of them have a confrontation how did this all happen to us you know Johnny I, I didn't mind what you did to me I mean I minded, but I would have gone on. 
You saying I can come back? The door's never been locked against you, Johnny. Not for my sake. But I couldn't do it to Edie. A child can't have a father who lives your life. Except on visiting days. Huh? Not even on visiting days. But that's the law. Not tough enough to change you. For what? To hold hands with those old faith friends of yours? I'm trying to make a world fit for Edie to live in. It's a sense you're not going to do it with a deck of cards in a racing form. But you are, huh? You and your big white brothers. Drink enough tea with them and stay out of the watermelon patch. And maybe our little colored girl grow up to be Miss America, is that it? I won't listen when you talk like that. You'd better go. Why don't you wise up, Ruth? It's their world and we're just living in it. Let go of me. Won't you ever let me catch you teaching Edie to suck Daddy, up to those... You woke me up. Oh, baby, I'm sorry. Sweetheart, listen. I was just telling your mommy how much I loved you. And you must never forget it. We had such a nice time today. I'm telling you how much I love your mama. You always mind her. Be good. We're counting on you a lot in this family. Very intense. Very well done. Yeah, I, I even I even stopped the movie and and brought the iPad over to my wife and said, "You got to watch this scene." <laughs> and you know, it's uh, having been uh, like in my late teens, early twenties in this time period, that had to be a pretty accurate depiction of what she was trying to do in New York City to bring herself into a different place. And it was so well played and written. Yeah, yeah, the writing was amazing. Well, we, we, we mustn't forget the, uh, what should we call him, the ringleader of this, of this band of men. Uh, Ed Bagley is the uh, disgraced police officer that was forced to leave the... Uh, New York police force because he didn't cooperate in an investigation on internal corruption. And he's living in this apartment uh, building that Robert Ryan takes that elevator up to meet him. And that that apartment that he had looked shop-worn and fit the fact that he was living on the edge financially. And, and um, just an aside, I wondered, whatever happened to his dog? Oh, yeah, well, hopefully he had somebody watching it. Because the dog disappears even before they take off on their bank heist adventure. I don't know what, I, I, I'm i sure that somebody looked after him, but that he's living in this, that looks like about a one-bedroom studio, or one-bedroom one or studio apartment. Uh, and, and he's just desperate to have this this robbery take place that he's completely scoped out. And and, mm-hmm. and it's it's in a yeah. town of a mythic a mythenary a myth <laughs> I really am not awake, a mythical town about 120 miles north of New York City. In real life, uh, it's Hudson, New York, but they gave it a different name for the movie. Uh, and Ed Bagley was a tremendous actor over, gosh, decades, and films that we haven't viewed that I think people would like to watch and enjoy would would be Patterns, which he did both in TV and in film. Sorry, Wrong Number, which is a thriller from 1948. I didn't realize this, but he was in On Dangerous Ground. 
the Robert Ryan film that we did earlier with Ida Lupino's character. I think he must have been the police. I think he was the police captain that was eating lunch all the time in the scenes in On Dangerous Ground. But my favorite role for him is 12 Angry Men from 1957. But, man, he, he was hell-bent on getting that robbery done. And he even worked with that mob guy to sort of put the muscle on uh, Ingram so he'd come along. Behind the scenes, he did Yeah, that. I read that. I did. I, yeah, I read that, and I don't remember picking up on that in the movie. Was there a scene that actually kind of showed him putting, well, uh, like calling him? Or? There was the scene where he met the mob guy uh, in Central Park when it, they, they were, he was feeding the pigeons, and he sort of planted the seed then, and then he made a phone call to him, and I think that was the phone call that kind of indicated to the mobster, let's, let's strong arm Mr. Belafonte's character and, and he'll come along because I need that third guy. Right, for the heist. right, and it was important that the third guy was a black man. I mean, that was kind of the key thing, and that and that's also what kind of is their downfall um, at the at the end. The fact that well, we won't, we haven't gotten there yet, but to, let's just say that the fact that uh, Slater's black is very important to this plan. <laughs> yeah, in in a lot of ways, and the tension between the three of them, Bagley was trying to hold the two of them. And keep him in line, and uh, he had his hands full because they were both ready to go at each other at a moment's notice. And and yeah, and I said Slater was black. It was actually Ingram. Ingram is the character yeah. played by Harry Belafonte. Yeah, it just there's it, it's almost like uh, some of the plots in Shakespearean plays where doom is on the horizon. When I first saw this film, I. I knew something was going to go bad, but I couldn't figure out quite what it was just by the way it was oh, yeah. photographed and the dialogue and and the things that were going on. I just I couldn't see this coming out. I could. <laughs> they way. were all hurtling towards like disaster. Doom from the beginning, you know. And I think that's the message in the film about what we were doing in that era with uh, nuclear arms. Yeah, there's a lot of relevance to that today. Yeah, that's interesting. There was a yeah, there was an interview which I'll put links in the show notes to this interview as well so um, this film was shown in the theater as part of a film noir film festival and harry belafonte was there afterwards for a q a and i think they spent over like an hour and a half just talking with him and talking about this movie and yeah the ending scene is is definitely supposed to be a metaphor for the arms race and what could happen um if you know that doesn't get resolved, and so that that was certainly on purpose. He he's an excellent uh, actor and and an activist. I uh, wanted to mention a little bit of his background. He was a singer from 1949 until he retired from singing in 2003, and he made calypso music really popular in the 50s. I know in high school, we all had Harry Belafonte calypso music on our. Uh, whatever those records were, 30, they 78s, I forget. Uh, they, they, one song to a side. Um, and he made about 30 films. I didn't realize he'd been that active in films. But he was really close with uh, Dr. King and uh, played a, a, a strong role in the uh, civil rights movement. And 
surprisingly, I went, you know, when in, I watched Black Klansman, Nancy and I went to see that in the theater. He's in that. Yeah, I was surprised he's still making movies, yeah. And and uh, he doesn't have a big part, but uh, there he was. He said that he always wanted to be an actor. Like, that was what he wanted to do. And, and he kind of grew up in and around music and so was also a, a very popular musician. But he, he's very self-deprecating about his skills, saying, well, I was never... I don't remember exactly, but it was something like, you know, it wasn't something that came easily to me or, like, naturally. And then he, yeah, he made all these movies and was so active with, with the civil rights movement. Um, and also, it just seems like a really nice guy, because after the Q&A, there was this huge line of people that lined up to get his autograph or his picture taken with them. And it looked like he just kind of just stood there and smiled and talked with people and very approachable person. So yeah, that's I, don't know, of, I wish I could, I wish I could meet him. <laughs> it came through <laughs> he seems in the like interview. A cool person. And then a, a little teaser for, uh, to make people really want to see that YouTube interview. I thought his comments about his approach to acting and the approach of Sidney Poitier were interesting. I don't want to go into that because that will destroy the, the teaser, but he had a definite view of what what he wanted to do in this in the acting realm, and and he also had a definite opinion on what Sidney Poitier's approach was. Remember that? It was t- oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's, totally. It's like, <laughs> yeah, so that that I will leave it at that. The other person that I I did want to mention because of her excellent career again for many many years, Shelley Winters. She plays Robert Ryan's. A partner, she won two Academy Awards for Best Actress, one for The Diary of Anne Frank from 1959 and uh, another one, uh, A Patch of Blue in 1965. And I believe Harry, uh, Sidney Poitier, I believe, is in A Patch of Blue. The, the number of films that we could do is just keeps growing every time we do one of these reviews. But she was excellent in her role which was not a big part, but uh, she was totally into that role of Laurie. Yeah, well, and it was also, it, it wasn't a huge part of the movie, but it was a real critical part of the movie to, to kind of uh, contrast against um, Slater's character. Um, the other person that was really good, I thought, was Kim Hamilton, who played Ruth, who was the ex-wife or girlfriend of Ingram. And I was just looking at her IMDb page, and she did a ton of movie. Uh, sorry, she did a ton of TV, and was in quite a few popular shows in the '70s and '80s, and even into the '90s. Yeah, we've learned a lot about some of these. I know in uh, the Harry Belafonte interview, we mentioned the third black actor from the '40s that, along with Sidney Poitier and himself, was active, James uh, Edwards. And so I yeah, looked up his yeah. background and. Man, he was he was in a lot of films and a lot of television work, but tragically died at the age of fifty-one. But a very recognizable man. I, I believe he kind of made his uh, uh, debut with a film in the late forties as a recovering war veteran. I believe the film was called The Men. I'm not positive of that, but uh, you know these. Yeah, there was a there was a movie that he did that I really there was a movie that he did that I really wanted to watch. Um, oh, oh, the Manchurian Candidate. Oh yes, that's right. He's in that one. Yeah. And I think you and I were talking yesterday about after 
the movies that we're doing. Um, this is the we have one more movie in our festival with black actors or black crew uh, or directors, that type of thing. Um, and then we're going to do musicals. And then we're going to do um, people of colors. And then and then I thought we could do maybe uh, Cold War fear movies, you know, and the Manchurian Candidate would be perfect for that. Oh, there's a, there's a lot of them from the late 50s, early 60s. You uh, sent me a link to one yesterday that we watched, Red Planet Mars from 1952. <laughs> That's kind of a forerunner to these. But uh, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Love the Bomb. Oh yeah, Stanley yeah. Kubeks, and then there's the one with Harry Bell, uh, with Harry Bell, Henry Fonda, and uh, the uh, mistake that's made on detecting a Russian bomber attack, and what that leads to, and I just forgot the name of it uh, from about 1961 or so. Oh gosh. Yeah, we should put a list together. Yeah. but those would be four really good ones right there. But yeah, we've got the next like three, four months planned out <laughs> for films. Or Seven Days in May, another one. Oh, Seven Days Ooh. in May. Yeah, yeah there, were, there, there were a string of these that came out like in the space of about two years, around late 50s, early 60s, when there was so much uh, surface testing of nuclear weapons, it was becoming really a big, big problem. So, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to try to remember the name of that Henry Fonda movie as we go along here. So we, we kind of get this setup of the three of them, uh, Ingram, Slater, and Burke. Burke is played by Ed Begley. And they're going to pull off this heist of this bank in this little town north of New York. And it looks like a pretty sure thing. Like the the setup is is one of these things. It's like, how could they screw this yeah. up? And well, there's many ways yeah. that they could screw it up. We find out <laughs> something as simple as who gets the car keys. Yeah, yeah. That wow. that was uh, so dumb. <laughs> yes. So yeah, they they pull up and they they're gonna pull off this this heist. And and the plan was for uh, Ingram to take the car and come around and I think pick them up from the door so that they can just make a quick getaway. But Slater won't give the keys to Ingram because he doesn't trust him. You know, it's, it's he's so racist that he, he doesn't trust that, that Ingram won't, I don't know, mess it up or something. Yeah. And that's the, that's, that leads to their downfall or the, the subsequent uh, interaction with the police. I don't want to go too far yeah, and, there, and, but... Yeah, and if they had just followed through with the plan, like, the plan was a good plan. Um, and even even that scene at the that kind of, like, sets off the final sort of flurry of violence, I would say, uh, mm. when the wrong person comes out of the door, you know, and the police officer sees that that's not who he would expect to be seeing to come out of the door. Um you know that if they had followed the plan that would have been no big deal it would have worked um but anyway it's film noir so of course it's not going to go according to plan well as i said it all went well until it didn't and boy it went wrong in a hurry i read that this was one of the last film noir like really good film noir movies made is that do you think that's true 
Oh, of of the era. Yeah, I mean, there's been the, film noir that's come out later. But. In the 1950s, yeah, this would be the you know, 1959. That would be sort of the tail end of it. Uh, and it was one of the f- last made with black and white film. And because even the ones that have come along since have been more in Technicolor, like L.A. Confidential or uh, Gene Hackman in The Heist. Yeah, I, I I would say that's probably pretty accurate. And I also want to mention that the movie that Henry Fonda was the president in was Failsafe. Oh, Failsafe. I've heard of An- that. Another, yeah. another movie from like 1963, 64, something like that, about we better watch out what we're doing with these weapons before we blow each other to kingdom come. I had a couple more thoughts before we kind of maybe wrap it up here All right. soon. Um, one is the... Inclusion of the children at the beginning of the movie and how they're both black and white kids playing and running and having fun. And and Harry Belafonte said that that was a decision by Robert Wise. He wanted to include that scene because it kind of creates a more balanced picture. He said that if there wasn't some view of the fact that we could get along, you know, across races, that it would just be it just wouldn't work as well. And I think that's true because it does, it does make me think about that opening scene and how important it was that those kids were playing. And and it kind of does offset the rest of the film and how these adults just can't get along, you know? Uh, That's so much a part of Mr. Wise's uh, brilliance when it came to directing. I hadn't thought of that, but it does set the tone. And then the counterpoint to that in that same scene is when Robert Wise's character picks up that little black girl, and or she fell down, I think, and he picks her up in a in a, a kind of a gentle way, but then uses a derogatory term about her. Yeah, I mean, it, you mean Robert Ryan's? Yeah, Robert. Character. Yeah, Robert. Ryan's. Robert Ryan's character. Sorry. So that that whole scene took less than a minute, and it really does set a tone. <clears throat> and I think another one of those is the group of people that. Ingram's wife was, uh, or ex-wife, was meeting with in the apartment to try to work on improving educational opportunities in the city. It's another scene that, you know, people working together for something better. Yeah. Yeah, those were important scenes to include because it does, it does, it's sort of like the yin and the yang of the, of the whole discussion. You know, you can't just have the one without the other. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was the music and, and some of the scenes in the nightclub. Oh, yes. I love listening to him sing. And... At night I tell you people When that cold, cold sun goes down At night I tell you people When that cold, cold sun goes down
my baby, what's shaking? Paco wants to buy you a drink. And I want to buy you a shiny new car. Too bad about Lady Care. Yeah. They bobbed her nose. Believe me, pretty mama. It's not just me, I know. Believe me, pretty mama. It's not just me, I know. I just can't that jungle outside of my front door. Then he made up the lyrics to that song in a real hurry because they couldn't afford to buy the rights to an actual popular song of the time, so they just made it up. And there's like there's only five lines in the song, but he, you know, it sounded really good. The music credits should go to, I guess, John Lewis, who did a lot of the background music on the film. Yeah, the music, everything about this film is classic for Robert Weiss films. He really knew how to yeah, put something touches. together. Yeah, even even that car that they were going to make their getaway in. Oh yeah, we can't we that can't engine? not mention that car. Holy smokes! It looked like he could ride it and drive it in Indianapolis 500. I know they were they were supposed to be in New York, but when he was driving that car out to uh leave it at, for the getaway it it looked like they were in Arizona or something it looked very bleak and desolate yeah well that was in keeping <laughs> with the with the look of the film <laughs> even even Ed Bagley's apartment looked bleak and desolate yeah that, I guess if we were going to choose a couple words to describe the movie those would be the words well you know my rating on this though is a 10. I mean, it really oh, is. Definitely, I, me too. This is a, a grand slam home run that was overlooked at the time, and now uh, is a real is a real treasure. Uh, I hope it's preserved. I I didn't catch whether or not it had been in the Library of Congress preservation or not. It would get my vote to be in it. Yeah, for anybody who's into film noir, this is definitely on the must see list, and. Another one that I've never even heard of before or seen, for sure. And so, uh, you know, I love this. I love doing this podcast just for that reason alone, not to mention all the other reasons I love doing it. But finding these gems and then being able to really deep dive, deep dive into them is, is so fun. Oh, no kidding. I was just reading here that that's, that's exactly why I love these podcasts as well. The modern jazz quartet incorporated a lot of the music from this film into their repertoire and played it all. Played oh, right, it over the yeah. Years. I wanted to mention that. And they were actually in the movie, too, because uh, Harry Belafonte knew them. And when he was talking to, um, I don't think it was Robert Wise, it was another one of the producers, and he was saying that, you know, I th what do you think about the modern jazz quartet as maybe being in the film? And, and and he was like, oh, do you think we could get them? And Harry Belafonte was like, yeah, I already talked to them. <laughs> <laughs> they're right They're right outside the door. Everybody that's missed this film would be doing themselves a real treat if they watched it. It's, it's, it's just that good. Yeah, and again, it's uh, on YouTube for free. It, it's in like three parts. I don't know why, but it it's fine. The quality is really good. And and you can read some of the comments under the film, and there's some actually some pretty interesting discussion, which is kind of cool. I mean, I like 
finding these movies on YouTube where then people have been commenting and reading through some of those comments. And I guess it was so underappreciated they never kept the copyright current. Yeah, I don't know why either that or somebody's uploaded it and it just hasn't been picked up by the algorithm yet. I don't know. Like, I don't know how long it'll be on YouTube, but it's there right now. So we'll see. And then next uh, next episode, we're doing Sounder, which is also on YouTube. So I'll put a link to that. Sounder, what a beautiful uh, movie from 1972. Cicely Tyson is the lead in that film. Yeah, I started watching it and I was like enthralled in the first five minutes. I was like, oh, this is going to be a good one. I could tell. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to watch it over the weekend, so we'll be ready next next podcast. And I read where the name Sounder, and I didn't know this until this week, that was the name of the dog oh, okay. in the film. I, I'll have to watch for that. I wasn't aware of that. So we wrap it up for this time, huh? Yeah, so that was our review of Odds Against Tomorrow. Love that name. And uh, coming to you from North Bend, it's Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing everyone happy movie watching. Well, these are the two that did it. Which is which? Take your pick.